Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Everyone in my life knows that books light me up. And on this show, I have the amazing opportunity to sit down with great authors and get inside their heads. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. On this week's episode of Lit Up, we have the writer of the best-selling novel, Sweet Bitter, Stephanie Dandler, who returns to the show to talk about her new memoir, Stray. Stray is all about growing up in a family shattered by lies and addiction, and in it, Stephanie confronts her past in an effort to ultimately build a better future for herself and her family. Stephanie and I also talk about why magical thinking can be destructive and learning the value of gentleness. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. I am so, so excited to have the privilege of speaking to Stephanie Danler again. Welcome, Stephanie, back to Lit Up. My favorite, favorite podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. And I have to recast to 2016 when we were able to talk about your debut novel, Sweet Bitter. And I remember trying to choose you know, the fancy Chablis to have for our interview because obviously you know so much about wine, but that was so much fun. And I think one of still my favorite interviews to date. It is definitely my favorite podcast and not just because we were drinking Chablis throughout, although that just sounds like the epitome of luxury and freedom given everything that's going on in the world at the moment. Can you imagine drinking wine together? I know. (laughs) And since we last talked, you've done so many things, but one of them is that you've written another extraordinary book, your memoir, Stray. One of their epigraphs at the beginning of Stray is a line written by Joan Didion from South and West. And it is, I've been looking all my life for history and have yet to find it. Why has it become necessary to examine your own history now? 
It started when I moved back to California in 2015. And I told myself that the decision was based on a set of external circumstances. Things like, I can't afford to live in New York anymore. And Los Angeles will be a quiet place for me to work on my next book. Once I arrived home, well, back home, so much about my childhood in Los Angeles and about the two extremely flawed people who raised me. My parents are both addicts. And there was episodes of turbulence and trauma throughout my childhood. And I think at an unconscious level, I'd been avoiding California for many, many years. So being back here, feeling the climate, the Santa Ana winds, the rains in the winter, it became unavoidable. The impetus to really write this book came as I started to think about having a child. And I wrote the first draft of this after collecting material for many years When my son Julian, I started it when he was five months old and I finished the first draft when he was seven months old. And it seems to me that the impulses are connected. It was sort of an internal housekeeping initially to see if I was ready to be a mother. And I don't think you're ever ready to be a mother, but I I do see that the book is connected to him, my son. I'm just imagining those two months because the book reads, it's so propulsive and it kind of comes out in this rush. It was obviously a very turbulent and emotional thing to dive back into that. Did it feel like it just came out in a rush? It did. It came out quickly. And I, to be fair to anyone who tries to write a book in two months, I had been working on this for four years at that point. And I had many passages of the book already written and note cards that I had been collecting, which is something I didn't do with my first book, but note cards that I had been collecting and arranging. So I had some sense of the scope and where the book was going. I find that very helpful with nonfiction. But as far as sitting down at the computer and opening a Word document and beginning to move through it, that was done in two months. And I think it had to be fast. I think I was trying to outrun my shame. I think that I was trying to keep myself in a kind of artistic blackout where I wasn't thinking or agonizing about the consequences of writing about real people who I love very much, but have chosen not to have in my life anymore. The books centered around my mother, my father, and my ex-lover, for lack of a better term, um, who was married, and we had an incredibly fraught and upsetting relationship. And so I needed the speed. Otherwise, I think I wouldn't have been able to stomach it, honestly. So you moved back to Los Angeles once before as well, and that was when you were 21, Can you tell me about that time? So I left Los Angeles at 16 after my relationship with my mother became abusive and unsustainable. 
and I moved to Colorado. From Colorado, I went to Ohio. From Ohio, I would go to New York. But at 21, my mother suffered a brain aneurysm that almost killed her and left her in a coma for a month. And from that coma, she emerged mentally and physically disabled. And I moved back to California that summer to nurse her. And when I moved home, I was very goal-oriented, which is we can't afford 24-hour care for this woman who couldn't walk. She was in diapers. She couldn't do anything for herself. And she had a very limited vocabulary when she first came home. And so I threw myself into the tasks of nursing, which take up quite a lot of time, just the logistics of therapy and the daily care that it takes. I was 21. I was not equipped emotionally. I found the experience torturous. And mostly I was shocked by how much hurt I still had with me. My mother and I were estranged for those years between 16 and 21. We never really recovered from my adolescence and her alcoholism during that time. And while I was caring for her, I realized that we were never going to, that she did not remember that time or my childhood. We were never going to have an adult relationship where we went on vacation together and laughed about how crazy things were when I was a kid. And at some point through the three months that I was the nurse, I realized that she wasn't going to get better because as she improved, her alcoholism came back, her depression, her voicing a desire for suicide, it all came back. And I ran and I didn't come back to California for 10, 11 years. I would come in for a few days here and there and check on people or see my friends who lived in Los Angeles, but I never, ever thought I would move back there. It felt too close to an old wound. I think that as we get older, the desire to confront our demons or to make peace with our past becomes stronger and stronger. But through your 20s, you're just convinced that you're coping perfectly. (laughs) You're just like, oh, I never think about it. I never talk to my parents. I'm high functioning. I'm employed. I'm doing so well. I must be fine. And that is so, so rarely the case. I feel like we try on different versions of our parents in our 20s without really realizing it. Mm. Does that relate to you? And then in some way, as we try to be in relationships that are potentially much healthier, we have to go back and re-examine why we played with the darker sides of ourselves. But we want to, I know for myself, you want to get rid of them or work out what the root cause of them are and see if you can shed them a bit. Looking back on my 20s, I think that is so interesting that we try on versions of our parents because I would have never said that, but I do think that a big part of Stray 
is reckoning with how similar I am not to my mother necessarily, but to my father who is or was extremely successful in whatever system he applied himself to. He's charismatic. He gets away with behavior that most people wouldn't be allowed to. He's also one of the most entitled people I've ever met. And I think that all of those selves were swirling around my 20s. And maybe the arena in which it really showcased itself most strongly was with my sort of arrogance about my substance abuse, or I wouldn't have called it substance abuse, but my belief that I could take whatever drugs I wanted, drink however much I wanted, be reckless with my body, my heart, and that there would be no consequences. That's what I mean by entitled. There's, of course, systemic entitlement as well. But what I'm talking about is this sort of belief that I was immune to consequences that left me in my 20s, but definitely informed a lot of the bad decision making that I detail in the book. I hadn't expected the entitlement that you mentioned to cast me back to a part in the book that I wouldn't necessarily have linked until now. And it seems like the ultimate entitlement is when your father decides to name you Stephanie. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Can you tell us about that situation and why actually you have a silver rattle with Jessica engraved on it in a box in your garage versus one that says Stephanie? My mother decided to name me Jessica. And from what I understand, Stephanie was on a short list, but she had in the last months of her pregnancy, if I was a girl, decided that Jessica Rose was going to be my name. And I was born. When she held me, she called me Jessica. My father showed up afterwards and was signing paperwork outside of the hospital room and decided to name me Stephanie Ann. Stephanie after Stephen, his name. He had been hoping that I was a boy. And this was a story that he told often with so much amusement at himself. He would just tell the story and laugh and laugh. And I think it only became clear to me as I got older and could empathize with my mother again. And I thought, this is a bully. This is a typical white patriarchal bully. (laughs) And he really walked in and out of people's lives with no sensitivity with no sense of guilt for the damage that he caused. And to this day, he is a recovering crystal meth addict, which I detail in the book. And I haven't had a relationship with him since 2009. It was when I got engaged to my first husband. And he still does not want this to be the story of the kind of father 
that he was. He still remembers the camping trips and the hiking and the fun that we had together. He has not been able to let go of this idea of who he was. And that image is stronger to him than the relationships around him. And it's perfectly exemplified by the fact that he disregarded my mother's wishes and did whatever he wanted. When I read that, it just, it felt like the ultimate betrayal to do to a woman who's just given birth to a child. And it seems to me that he's a narcissist too, in terms of that inflated ego. Absolutely. To think that there are no consequences, or I think it's that the rules don't apply to him. And I think I am very grateful to not be a narcissist the way that he is, but I think that a lot of those tendencies in me, my worst impulses, probably surfaced throughout my 20s. There are three sections in the book, Mother, Father, Monster, and thinking about the way we learn to love, and there's an incredible line about how being built to love a certain type of man, and it definitely relates to your your father, Can you talk about the time you went to see a psychic, I think your best friend's psychic, and how you're a little or very skeptical, but I was fascinated by what came out of that conversation. Well, I continue to be skeptical of psychics, although I have softened quite a bit (laughs) in my years in Los Angeles, but my best friend Carly in the book is a very spiritual person, and She watched me suffer for years in this affair with someone who, over time, made it very clear that he could not leave his marriage or would not leave his marriage, but continued pursuing me and telling me that he was going to leave his marriage. If you and I were sitting down to dinner, I would say I was in this terrible relationship and it passed and don't have sex with married men. (laughs) The lessons are quite clear. But in going back to write about it, I uncovered so much more complexity to the affair and so much more compassion for him. A lot of it involved reading all of our emails and all of our WhatsApp transcripts, which is over 500,000 words of an absolutely idiotic really sad conversation, ultimately really sad. But I did believe that this was the great love story of my life, that my entire future hinged on being able to heal with him. Even as the months turned into years and we had become absolutely reprehensible, grotesque versions of ourselves, hateful to each other, hateful to the other people in our lives, the who we lied to constantly. But I believed completely that being with him and healing this wound was the only way that I would ever achieve happiness. That there was not anyone else for me because his damage matched mine. And if I could fix it, I would feel whole again. And so the stakes of that love affair felt so much bigger than just stop sleeping with a married guy. 
it felt connected to healing things with my family, with my father. It felt connected to my childhood. This affair, him flying into town, him flying out of town, the constant rejection, validation, followed by abandonment cycle. I was having trouble grocery shopping. I was having trouble driving. I was in tears constantly and Carly made me go to her psychic who didn't want to talk about it. (laughs) She wanted to talk about my pain body that I carry with me in the future that I was creating like a book um, or a healthier version of myself. And I kept trying to bring it up with her, (laughs) not understanding that if you see a psychic, you should probably just listen to what they're seeing instead of trying to drive the car. And she said, he's the shadow side of you. You are light and he is the dark. (laughs) And I thought, well, that doesn't work for me. I I don't want to hear that my book's going to be a success. I don't want to hear that I'm going to be fine someday. I don't want to hear about the angels that are floating all over my shoulders. No offense if you believe in angels. I just want to hear that he and I are going to make it through this. And she said, no, I don't see you with him. A lot of those things that the psychic said to me turned out to be true. So the joke is on me. But one thing that I think about is this sort of way that if he was my shadow self, needing to integrate that into me without him, but all of the dark impulses that he represented, needing to come to terms with those in order to strive for something better. She didn't say it like that. I've, you know, I've extrapolated quite a bit, but that seems correct to me. Well, and something I think she also said was you created him. Mm. We do make up the stories about these people for ourselves and that's the part we can change. Yes, and that is the realization at the end. The third section is called Monster and I think people think that it's going to be about this man, but it is about the realization that I am the monster And I've been doing this to myself. I did create him. And I kept him alive by returning to him over and over and over again. And once I took responsibility for creating him, I was able to let him go. Truly, it it takes the narrative back from victimhood to being the active participant in your life. And that feeling of choice is the opposite of the way that I have felt in relationships with my parents, where I often feel choiceless, and my relationship with him, where I felt for a long, long time that he had all the power. Your Aunt Pam says some very uh, pointed things about this relationship you have with him, and one that I found very interesting You say, I've never been able to see anything so clearly, my life with him. And then she says, you see it clearly because you're making it up. It kind of comes back to how our hopes and fantasies are so powerful that they're sometimes very hard to give up, even if they're not at all serving us. 
Yes, absolutely. I think there is so much magical thinking when loving addicts or simply people who abuse your love, loving liars. There is so much magical thinking that is actually very destructive and keeps you from looking at the reality of the situation. I've heard it called in psychology, relentless hope, but it's a masochistic kind of hope that we tell ourselves is a virtue, but is actually a really hurtful brand of self-delusion. And of course, I saw my life with him clearly because it was a story I was writing. That's what I do. I'm a storyteller. I think that the realist in me knows that the reality, statistically speaking, (laughs) and from a few years is that we would have been really unhappy together. I think that it's quite clear with some distance from the situation, but the pull of those fantasies is irrational. It's completely irrational. And as far as my aunt is She's definitely a tough cookie throughout the book, but she does look life in the face. Uh, She was a lawyer for many, many, many years, and she likes facts and likes to dismantle stories. And so she was helpful. She definitely sounds like a tough cookie. It does remind me of another part in the book, though, when you're talking about the monster and how much you want him to admire how different you are from other women. And I related to that because I can sometimes find myself creating this persona of being totally independent and that, you know, I wouldn't crack under a certain situation or I'm not like those women that want what every other woman wants, a family and children. And by kind of disconnecting probably from the thing I want most, I feel like that somehow buffers me from the terror of being hurt. And Mm. somehow you capture that so beautifully in the book and made me think about the things we do to, to try and protect ourselves, even though it's utterly in vain. Did you read Three Women? Yes. Did you talk to Lisa? I did. I did. And we really delved into this. Yes, of course. We had an event together and we were talking about the gymnastics that women do to minimize their needs in relationships because they're scared of the extent of their wants and they're scared that if they voice them, they will push men away. They make themselves as small and digestible as possible in order to keep the attention of their lover. And what you were just saying is so relatable to me, especially in the not wanting stability or a family. I think after my divorce, I liked, I enjoyed the persona of this sort of been there, done that. I don't want children. I was married. I'll never get married again. And that was armor because the process of leaving my husband and the emotional fallout from our divorce was 
absolutely fucking heartbreaking and just took everything down with it, took down the restaurants that we worked so hard to build, took down our, our home, our things, our savings account, everything was decimated. I mean, there was very real painful fallout and I had this sort of flippancy about it. Even with the monster, I still was inhabiting this sort of cynicism towards conventional romance. I say in the book somewhere that I felt this superiority complex about our love, that it was somehow truer because it was difficult or because we survived all these obstacles, that our love was somehow truer. Can we talk about another of my favorite sections? And that's where you're camping with another man you're seeing. So we're in the first third of the book and I've begun dating a man called the love interest that I am not taking seriously. He's in a polyamorous relationship. I am still seeing the monster running around in circles, trying to get him to leave his wife um, and choose me. And I believe that I'm dating the love interest sort of to pass the time. What's happening as this man takes me camping all over California is that I'm starting to really enjoy him. And I'm starting to enjoy a life away from the monster and a life in which you can create memories together. And that is where his name is Matt. He's my husband now, but that is where we were for a long time, longer than I think most conventional love stories would have you believe. I'm much more familiar with love stories like The Monster, where we saw each other and were willing to risk everything to be together at that point, or we had a feeling of wanting to burn the entire world to the ground. And with Matt, as we were falling in love, it was so gentle and slow and respectful. I was very confused by it and recognized immediately that it would need me to let go of a lot of these stories I had about what it means to love. A lot of the stories I had that if love wasn't pain, then it wasn't interesting. That connects to a part later in the book where you talk about care and being careful. And I wondered if you could extrapolate a bit on that because it really connects to this gentleness you describe and that good things, they can sometimes go unrecognized because they don't have that drama to them. But how once you recognize them, we can kind of relish the care it takes to turn up every day and be kind and I I guess to be really grateful to the kindness coming towards us. Mm, Yeah, and to think that perhaps love can be a form of nurture and not a challenge. I think that the monster and I had this conversation where each other was the most challenging person that we had encountered and that we needed that to become our best selves, that the conflict and the difficulty was 
necessary and what separated us from all these other boring, amusing quotes, boring love stories. And I think that in my family, there is a precedent of drama, rage, physical abuse, alcoholism, violence, that we also equate that to care for each other is to be unified. There's a line in the book about confusing care and neglect somewhere in the passage about my mother's car accident where she almost hurts a lot of people. And it was because we had found a way to get her a driver's license at a certain point in her recovery that we knew she wasn't qualified to have, but it made everyone else's life easier for her to be mobile. And I think that that is the kind of care I was raised with. It's a a neglect and irresponsibility or a shirking, passing off of responsibility. And the kind of care that I'm coming to recognize towards the end of the book At the very end of the book, when I say that I'm beginning to be full of care, is about being gentle and kind. You you said the word kind, and I really think that practicing self-kindness is the work of my life. And it's only in learning about it for myself that I will be able to teach my children how to do it, that I'll be able to keep these friends and lovers and my sister in my life by constantly exercising gentleness. And I hope at the end of Stray, it feels ongoing that I'm going to be haunted by the same demons, chased by them, that I'll always have an impulse to escape myself, whether through drugs or travel or infidelity, but that I am trying to be careful, which I define in the book as being full of care towards the good things in my life. And that's really as far as I've gotten at 36 years old, (laughs) which it's, I wish it was further, (laughs) but that's it. I think, well, I think you're trying to make sense of your history in Stray will help so many others kind of help make sense of their own. I'd love you to explain desert eyes. And I feel like we could all use this ability that the love interest who is now your husband, the way he sees the world and how that helps you see the world differently. Mm -hmm. When we first went to Joshua Tree, I, in the book, I admit to him that I had never found the desert beautiful As a child, if we passed Palm Springs or Palm Desert, I would talk about how ugly it was and how there were no trees and how scared I was of snakes and how barren everything felt and hot and dry like an ache. And I think that I assumed this sort of homogenous beige color that stretched as far as the eye could see was the totality of the landscape until I started going there with Matt. And he told me about Desert Eyes, which is just a lens 
on the landscape that doesn't come with baggage, but is there to absorb the details and the beauty of what looks like a hillside of rocks, but is actually so complex and the flora and fauna that's so varied and fascinating for a landscape that I had written off as something I didn't like. End of story. I don't like the desert. (laughs) Don't like going there. (laughs) And we go there all the time. And I'm a partner in a wine store out there now. And it's been a huge part of me falling back in love with California is coming to it with desert eyes, willing to suspend judgment and be present. I think I'm going to apply desert eyes to a lot of things. There are so many parts of Stray we haven't even begun to interrogate, and that's why everyone needs to read this book themselves. I'm wondering if there is one piece of literature or a book that you recommend to others a lot. Is there one that stands out to you that has either helped you through the writing of this book or just one that you love that you can share with our listeners? Mm, Yeah. On the subject of care, I think that Maggie Nelson's Argonauts is one of the best books on the compromise and sacrifice and sacredness of care. If you are looking for something more educational, but also incredibly visionary formally, the memoir Negroland by Margot Jefferson is just stunning. It upends ideas of entitlement and privilege, but it's a very personal story about a childhood in an affluent African-American community in Chicago that also is a cultural history. And I think both of those books are more academically inclined than Stray, but both are memoirs at their core and deeply personal, which is something I was looking for constantly. What's the real personal risk that the writer is putting down on the page? Thank you so much for sharing your honesty with us. I can feel the risks that it must have taken and felt like to to write Stray. I loved it. And thank you so much for talking with me and for sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to writing another book so we can have wine. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I can't wait. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Stephanie Danler. Her book, Stray, is available via a link on our website, lituppodcast.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. This week's episode was edited by Rebecca Seidel. The theme music is by Andre Rudofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.